Hello, I'm John Brown, Chairman of Beyond Net Zero, and this is Net Zero and Beyond. In this series, we look at how the world can get to net zero and the pioneers hoping to make it happen. So far, we've explored the ways in which different sectors and industries are trying to reach net zero by deploying new technologies and changing behaviours. Today, I want to look at something different. I want to look at not just reducing emissions, but at removing them. Because almost all realistic paths to net zero rely, to some extent, on the removal of greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. The Science-Based Target Initiative estimates that up to 10% of today's greenhouse gas emissions cannot be reduced and will need to be addressed in other ways. We know how to do this, whether through natural solutions such as reforestation or technological solutions such as carbon capture and storage. But it's fair to say that these solutions have never quite taken off. During my time at BP, for example, we spent a lot of time and resources on trying to establish a carbon capture facility at Peterhead in the United Kingdom, only for the government to withdraw its support. But that was some time ago. Today, there's a renewed focus on new ways of thinking and doing something about greenhouse gas removal. One man at the centre of this is Sean Fitzgerald, former director of the Royal Institution in London and now director of the Centre for Climate Repair at Cambridge University. So we're reducing greenhouse gas emissions from where we are presently standing we've actually got to reduce a lot of greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere at the moment. How can we do this? Well, the the real issue is that you're completely right. We do need to reduce the, the greenhouse gas levels in the atmosphere. They're already at something like 500 parts per million carbon dioxide equivalent. This is a, a an enormous task. We're going to need a plethora of uh, different options and solutions, some of which will will be nature-based, some of which will be purely engineering-based, many of which will be of a hybrid nature. And the Centre for Climate Repair at Cambridge has done a mapping exercise at looking at what the technologies that we have available. And we've identified a few that we think have enormous potential, but which are currently underserved when it comes to progressing those in terms of technology readiness levels. The top three. What do you think the top three ways of doing this are today? Today, the top three, the top, the top two for carbon dioxide are probably ocean-based rather than land-based. Mm-hmm. So the ocean occupies, what, 70% of the world's surface. And the whole picture of the ocean as we see it today, lots of blue ocean, is really not what the ocean should be. A lovely blue ocean is a bit like the Sahara Desert on land. It's barren. And in fact, the ocean should be teeming with life. I wonder how we can improve the stock of living matter. I know that the oceans and ocean absorption of carbon dioxide generated from industrial purpose processes and the precipitation of uh, and the generation of salts which come from that is something under a lot of investigation at the moment for removal of greenhouse gases from processes we do today. 
but how can we actually improve the biomass in the ocean to get more of it, more of what we've generated uh, absorbed by the oceans? So the, the framing of this is incredibly important. And for us, the fundamental question is what should the oceans already be doing and why are they not? And so, for example, the number of whales that we have in the ocean is less than 1% of actually what, what was there. But the critical thing is that the, the whale population has obviously been uh, destroyed for, by a number of factors, but the whales themselves are part of an ecosystem. And if you eliminate one part of an ecosystem, the whole thing falls apart. So if we can get the whale numbers back up, what the whales do is that they feed at the bottom, some of the tooth whales, they feed at the bottom and they defecate at the top. And when they defecate, that actually provides nutrients to the surface waters. And one of the nutrients that's missing in a number of the parts of the ocean is iron. You don't need very much of it, but without it, things won't grow. And the, the big question is, what was the role of things like whales in serving the biogeochemical pump? And it was providing the recirculation of iron that will get taken down by biomass from the surface waters and then bring it back to the surface to allow yet more growth. And the, the multiplier effect is probably you know, one to 100,000 in terms of the, the atoms of of iron that you might be interested in and the number of atoms of carbon dioxide that you're interested in then sequestering, it's got this kind of multiplier at stake. So that sounds like we first must make sure we do a really good job at conservation, uh, making sure that the whales are allowed to breed, that they're not killed, uh, and that presumably the oceans are clean enough for all sorts of life to uh, carry on. So all of that would help clean up the ocean and get it to be an important sink for carbon dioxide, as it was probably in the past. This sounds like a very important, but it could take some time to get there, but, but no time like the present to start. Tell me a little bit, if you may, about uh, trees. What do you think about planting a trillion trees as the World Economic Forum decided that they should do in 2020? Um, I'm a great lover of nature in its widest forms. And I think you know, planting trees is clearly a very good thing and it's good for carbon. There is a challenge regarding the timescale over which one then starts to see the benefits in terms of, of the carbon being sequestered. But when you run the numbers, we still have limitations in terms of land. It's competing for water. We have crops and things like this where trees grow. And that's the one thing that the ocean solution has less of an impact on other resources, John, which is why we're particularly drawn to uh, ocean solutions for carbon dioxide at the moment. So this sounds like something that if we start, and, and maybe some trees will help, but it's really getting the oceans to work the way they used to, then this is a long-term baseline improvement. And if we stick with it, maybe in 20 years or 30 years, we're going to have a very interesting and important absorption area for carbon dioxide. Indeed. And the kind of numbers that we are looking at in terms of the potential of the ocean, if you take just literally a, a small percentage, a, a few percent at most of the ocean, then the kind of carbon sequestration numbers that you can look at are of the order of gigatons. I mean, I've seen numbers as high as 40 gigatons, which is eye-watering and gets very, very interesting thing. And there aren't many other approaches where in a 20-year timescale that you can start thinking about that sort of 
quantum. So increased temperatures in the Arctic area unfreeze permafrost. Permafrost is a combination of ice, gravels, and biomass. Uh, I remember this very well when I worked in Alaska. We were very concerned working up in Alaska not to damage the permafrost because the moment it is damaged in any way at all, it behaves very differently. It creates lakes, it starts decaying. And you can see today photographs of the Russian Arctic where the permafrost has buckled and produced hills where there were plains of permafrost. And permafrost, as it unfreezes, starts emitting methane and carbon dioxide. Is that correct? Indeed. So we were seeing releases of methane from what was previously permafrost. And the scenarios that I've seen looking at the potential releases of methane from the clathrates, from just stored in the biomass there, and carbon dioxide as well. But the methane releases are quite scary. So this is uh, this sounds to me to be irreversible, but how can you repair the permafrost? So it is irreversible in the current framing, and we have to accept that the rate of progress on emissions reduction and indeed greenhouse gas removal is too slow for us to see that the Arctic will stay in a frozen landscape. And therefore, the, th the third objective of the Centre for Climate Repair is to looking at the reparation of places like the Arctic. And the only thing that is left to us is to think about whether we could potentially reduce the amount of radiation from the sun impacting on those areas. And it's not something that I would, uh, that I want to do, but I fear that we might well have to do it. And therefore we've got to go and do the research. And if we can reduce the what we call the insulation, the amount of sunlight coming into the Arctic in the Arctic summer, even just by a, a few percent, it can have dramatic effects in terms of therefore turning the tide and being able to certainly preserve what ice is, is left, but ideally over the Arctic winter to then allow more of the ice to form. If we can then ensure that the ice grows to about a metre thickness over the Arctic winter, we'll then be able to keep the ice cover over the Arctic summer. And that does two things. A, it allows the ecosystems to, uh, to be maintained, but importantly, it increases the what we call the reflectivity or the albedo over the Arctic summer. And therefore, the ocean itself won't get heated up as much because the sea ice is doing a reasonable job at reflecting the sunlight. So we've got to try and keep the ice there. So what we know is that the Arctic is, is warming much faster than the rest of the globe by almost a factor of three. Is that right? About three times faster. And as it warms, so the ice goes away, ice has uh, two functions here. One is to keep the Arctic together, so things like the permafrost don't melt. And secondly, ice is white, and white things reflect solar radiation. So your, the proposal here is to refreeze the Arctic by stopping the sunlight going to the Arctic. That sounds like science fiction. Sounds like a big job of geoengineering. And we don't quite know how to do that yet, I think. But it's certainly worth thinking about. 
I mean, we don't we don't know how to do it. You're completely right. There are some modeling studies that have been undertaken. There have been some laboratory studies on looking at release of particles and how that might be undertaken. But we have not seen any field scale experiments. And, you know, we haven't necessarily thought of everything. And therefore, we're going to need to tread very carefully because we have to assume that there will be um, negative unintended consequences. And we have to try and identify those through experimentation before someone starts to try and do some of these things, perhaps in anger, in desperation. We need to do the research. But in terms of therefore choosing which particular types of geoengineering that we are going to undertake for research purposes here at Cambridge, we've decided to choose an approach called marine cloud brightening. And the reason being, marine cloud brightening involves basically generating sea spray. So the the smell of the sea air when you stand on the shore, that smell is salt water that is, that is evaporated and you're smelling salt crystals. And salt crystals of the right size get convected up naturally and they only need to go up to about a thousand meters. But if you get the right size salt crystals, they can actually make the clouds whiter. Now, it's a natural process anyway. And we're looking at how we might be able to create more sea spray in certain parts around the Arctic. And the idea being that if you don't like what you've done because of an unintended consequence, the characteristic of this effect is that it's only got a sh shelf life of about two weeks. The moment you stop generating the more sea spray, the salt crystals just get rained out and then you're back to square one. The downside is because it's only got a shelf life of two weeks, it's quite expensive to keep doing it. But I believe it's much more important to do the safer things first, even if they cost you more, to help us learn more about geoengineering approaches. Seems to me that repairing the oceans and getting more life into the oceans is almost good for all seasons. It's something we really do need to think about and do well. Planting trees in the right places, being careful that we, we, we use land very carefully, that's pretty good as well. Uh, we've got to do something about the Arctic, but we need to be very careful how we do it. That's it. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Hello, I'm Giles Wittell, Tortoise's Deputy Editor. On the News Meeting podcast, we try to make sense of what should be leading the news with three guests who each pitched the story they think matters most. And once a month, we record a live episode in our newsroom. The next one is on the 27th of March, and I'm going to be joined by the brilliant author and podcaster Elizabeth Day. To come to the event and tell us what you think should lead the news, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. That is tortoisemedia.com forward slash book.